You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. What is humankind's purpose? What are we here to do? It's a question that's been asked uh, for as long as history can record. And it's not ultimately just a collective question, right, that we ask generally about what, what is the purpose of, of all of this or all of us, but it's also an individual question, right? Not only one that every society or culture asks, but one that every individual asks, what is my purpose? What am I here to do? And it's a question that is continually debated and will continue to be debated far into the future. It seems that regardless of all of the growth and knowledge and the growth and understanding that we've had in the centuries, even millennia of human existence, this question still remains. And so as Christians, what is our answer to that? We need to know. We need to know because the world is trying daily to give us its answer to that question. The Westminster Catechism poses this question as follows. It says, what is the chief end of man? Right? Which is just a fancy way of saying, what is the purpose of humankind? And I love the Catechism because it operates uh, with a certain level of brevity, which I appreciate, uh, even though my sermons might suggest otherwise. What is our purpose? Well, the answer is one sentence, and it says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, brothers and sisters, this morning, that is a true, helpful and biblical answer to the question of what our purpose is. But, it's also a difficult answer. A scary one, even. Because if we're honest about our lives this morning, whether we are Christians in the room or whether we are not Christians in the room, if we're honest about our lives, we struggle or wholly fail to glorify God. And so if the God of the Bible is God, and if what He's laid out in the Bible are His standards, then all of us have a reason to be afraid this morning. And so for me, although this quintessential question, this long-standing question, has a very simple answer in the Bible's terms, that answer only gives me more anxiety. Why? Well, because even though I know now what I'm supposed to do, glorify God, enjoy Him forever, the reality is that I'm in no way capable of doing that. I can't glorify God, which means I won't enjoy Him forever. And so the new 
and ultimately more pressing question becomes, how can I do what I cannot do? How can I do what I cannot do? And so what should have been comforting in answering this incredibly, incredibly persistent question, what is the chief end of man? What is my purpose? Glorify God, enjoy Him forever. What should be comfortable in knowing the answer to that question ultimately produces discomfort because at the end of the day, I can't do what that demands of me. And we should feel that tension this morning. In fact, I'd, I'd, I'd argue that most of our anxieties throughout the week probably come back to that root, especially if we're Christians. If we're looking back at our week this morning and we're thinking, oh man, I have these regrets or I have these anxieties or these issues, more often than not, as Christians, it's because there are good things that we know we should do and bad things that we know we shouldn't do that we either have not done or have done this week. And so we walk into God's presence on Sunday with, with a bit of tension, a bit of anxiety. Well, brothers and sisters, this question, how do I do what I can't do? Pentecost, I believe, has an answer for us. And so let's read God's Word in Acts chapter 2. And this is what happens Starting in verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So all of Jesus' disciples together in one place. And then it says that, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were what? Sitting. The disciples aren't up to anything particularly majestic. They're sitting. And it says in verse 3 that divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, rested on each and every one of them, male and female, young and old. And verse 4 says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what happened? Well, in verse 2, we see the culmination, right, of Jesus' promise to His disciples. Wait in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, you will receive power when My Spirit comes upon you. And so as they're sitting in the upper room, God sends Him that promised Spirit. Now, what makes this event so significant for the church? Well, First and foremost, I mean, like I said, just in, just in Acts chapter 1, Jesus promised that it would happen. So that's significant in and of itself. And of course, Jesus being Lord of heaven and earth, when He says you'll receive power, I want to know what He means when He says power. But Acts chapter 1 verse 8 isn't the first time that we hear Jesus speak of the coming of the Holy Spirit. In fact, He's primed this pump regularly throughout His ministry to his disciples. In fact, in John chapter 16, this is what Jesus says about this day of Pentecost. 
He says, I, I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, right? Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm about to ascend into glory. And then he says, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Verse 7, nevertheless... I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I, Jesus, go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And so last week we talked about Jesus' ascension. We talked about why that event should be precious for us. One that we regularly look to for a present hope in the world. This, this reality that we belong to an ascended and currently reigning Jesus. And that this reigning Jesus is not only our King, but that He is our priest. And that as our priest, He is delivering prayers to the ear of God the Father from His very right hand. But there's a further benefit of the ascension that we didn't talk about because we didn't want to spoil the party this week. You see, Jesus' ascension also makes way for this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to come to God's people. And Jesus says that that actually is preferable to Him remaining with His disciples in the flesh. So clearly, this is a huge deal. Why? Well, because of who the Spirit is. And because of what the Spirit does. So who is the Spirit? Well, the first time we see this Spirit of God is, we don't have to go very far into the Bible to find Him, do we? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Verse 2, the second verse in all the Bible, before Jesus is ever mentioned, we hear this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So this Spirit, this Spirit that Jesus promises to His people, this Spirit that He says is actually preferable that they would be with them instead of Him, is this Spirit who was hovering over the creation as the world began. And this same Spirit is included when in that same chapter God says these words, let us make man in our image. And so in short, the Spirit is God. And although the Spirit has a distinct role within this Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Spirit is equal in dignity and ultimately equal in deity. That's who the Spirit is. But what does the Spirit do? Well, Acts chapter 2 has an answer for us. Peter is preaching a sermon, his first sermon, and maybe his best one, if we want to go by the numbers. <laughs> 
Peter's preaching this sermon, and in it he says this, This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He says later on in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain That because Jesus has ascended, God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And we read that last week, but what happens next? Well, in verse 37 it says this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Sounds like a familiar question, doesn't it? What do we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For what? For the forgiveness of your sins and what? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's just remind ourselves of what's taken place up to this point in Acts chapter 2, right? Peter, after the disciples receive the Spirit, preaches this gospel message, this sermon and what we, what, what we wouldn't know if we, just didn't, if we sort of just skipped the rest of the chapter, what we wouldn't know is that Peter is preaching to a vast array of different kinds of peoples. In those intervening verses, in between verse 4 and verse 14, what we find out is that Peter is preaching to an audience of men, women, and children, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, Asians, Phrygians, Pamphylians, Egyptians, Libyans, Romans, Jews, Gentile Jews, Cretans, and Arabians. And he delivers to them all the news that the crucified homeless Jesus is now the ascended King Jesus. And what happens? The audience is cut to the heart. They're convicted by the gospel message of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension on their behalf. And they ask the apostles, what shall we do? And Peter responds, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And two things will happen. You'll be forgiven of your sins and you'll receive this same Spirit by which we are testifying to you. And this account in Acts chapter 2 goes on to tell us that that very day, after this very sermon, 3,000 souls were added to the church. God's family grew by 3,000 people this day alone. And what's taking place here? Three things have happened. First, if the Spirit is God, then at Pentecost, God gave Himself in the form of the Spirit to His people forever. All those who repent and are baptized in Jesus' name not only receive forgiveness, but we also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who is God Himself. And so God now dwells in them. So rather than Jesus being limited to a location, He is now present with us, with His people, everywhere that they or we go. 
We read this just a couple of weeks ago when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, right? In verse 16, Paul says this, Do you not know, church, do you not know, brothers and sisters, do you not know that you are God's temple? His dwelling place. That the Spirit of God dwells in you. Brothers and sisters, at Pentecost, the people of God become the dwelling place of God. God doesn't live in that building where there's a room deep inside that none of us can enter into. No, no, no. We don't enter the building. God enters us by His Spirit at Pentecost. This is what the Spirit does. He brings God not only to us, but into us. Second, through the power of the Spirit, God unites a multicultural, multinational people. Look at that list of cultures, nations, and ethnicities. Do you want me to read them all again? It was really hard the first time, but I can try again. Look, that's not in there by circumstance. Luke isn't sitting there going, man, I wonder how many I can list. I want to make this really difficult for people in 2018 to read. That's in there for a reason. This Holy Spirit who is God, when He comes upon God's people, He unites all of them in spite of their many earthly divisions. This is what the Spirit does. That's why Paul appeals to the unity of the Spirit in Ephesians 4 when he says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain what? The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. why we greet each other every morning. Peace be with you. But there's a third thing that happens here. So not only does God give Himself to His people, and not only in giving Himself to us, does He also give us peace with one another, and in particular peace with people who are not like us, but also, when the Spirit comes, the Gospel Word, when it is preached, is received powerfully. The evangelism of these recently fearful disciples is empowered by the Holy Spirit to amazing ends. 3,000 people are added that day. Brothers and sisters, this is what the Spirit does. He empowers the simple message of the Gospel to great and wondrous effect. Again, we just read this a few weeks ago, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, what does Paul say? He says, And I, when I came to you, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but what? In demonstration of the Spirit and power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power 
of God. And so, brothers and sisters, what Jesus meant when He said that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, this is what He's talking about. This is what that power does. You see, at Pentecost, God's people have been given God's presence that manifests itself in God's power. Now, these are great truths. And there are many more implications of God's Spirit being with us, but I want us to see something in particular here. And that is this. The Spirit and God's power that comes to dwell in us aren't primarily given for us, but rather for a task. And what is that task? Well, conveniently, it's in three parts. Number one, God sends His Spirit to us. Jesus sends His Spirit to us. Tells us it's preferable that His Spirit comes with us. Tells us that God's power comes with God's Spirit to us in order to build a unified body. In Christ and in Christ alone is the necessary power for a people of distinct origins, whether they're origins of country, origins of class, or origins of culture, to come together as one new people in the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 12-13, we haven't gotten there yet, but we will soon, says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Get this, for in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free. The Spirit is the power, brothers and sisters, that we need to unite across lines that have traditionally and perpetually kept us from unity. There's a second thing that God has given us His power for. Not only building a united body, but also so that our testimony of God's grace, so that our evangelism might be effective. You see, a lot of us think that the key to effective evangelism is simply to refine our methods. Right? So we ask questions like, how can we package the gospel message in such a way that it's easy to understand, intellectually rigorous, scientifically conscious, socially aware, and minimally awkward? And we truly believe that the better we can do those things, the more effective we think we'll be. But brothers and sisters, it's quite clear from Peter's words here and Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2 that evangelism isn't effective primarily because it sounds good. But evangelism is effective primarily when it is accompanied by God's power. The Spirit is the power that makes the simple gospel effective when it's proclaimed in its simplicity. And so God gives us His Spirit power not only to build a united body, not only to evangelize effectively, but also so that we might be found as a people who are living righteously. 
Now here's the thing, a lot of us think that the key to righteous living is sheer willpower. But the Bible paints a fairly different picture. As my brother over here said, good luck. In Galatians 5, we're told this, the fruit of what? The Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with that Spirit. Brothers and sisters, our willpower isn't enough. It never has been. That's why God sends the Spirit. That's why Pentecost is such good news. The Spirit is the power that enables us to live obedient lives. Lives that are characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now what do those three things have in common? The building of a united body, effective evangelism, meaning people responding to the name and the fame and the glory of Jesus and when God's people live lives that are upright in the world. What do those three things have in common? Well, when people unite under Jesus, when they evangelize all the peoples of the earth and when they live righteously, guess what? God is glorified. Our purpose, brothers and sisters, is fulfilled. And this is the glorious good news of Pentecost. Because Jesus died for our sins, because He rose in victory over them, and because He's ascended now to God's right hand, we now have God's power within us. And what we were unable to do on our own, we can now do with God's power. God gives us what we need in order to glorify Him so that we might enjoy Him forever. And so what was at one time an anxiety-producing question, now in light of Pentecost, in light of the coming of God's Spirit, in light of His dwelling within us, is no longer an anxiety-producing question, but rather a question that gives us great joy because we know we have all that we need to glorify our God in heaven. And that is good news, brothers and sisters. That with the Holy Spirit, we can glorify God. How do I do what I cannot do? By the power of the Spirit that dwells in me because of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father. And so, brothers and sisters, here's our, our real problem. Our real problem is that we're trying to do these three things, build a unified church, evangelize effectively, and live righteously in our own power. And that is truly, I'll say this as gently as possible, that is truly absurd. And so brothers and sisters, if we're discouraged by the disunity in the church, maybe before trying to enact a plan, we should call on the power of the Spirit. 
If we're discouraged by our ineffective evangelism, maybe our friends aren't coming to Jesus, maybe before trying to refine our methods, we should call on the power of the Spirit. If we're discouraged by our struggle to live righteously, maybe before trying a little harder next time, we should call on the power of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, the glory of Pentecost is that God dwells in us. And when God's people are filled with God's power, there is no limit to their ability to glorify Him. And this is what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 4 that the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning. God, again, we are grateful to be gathered together in light of a crucified, victoriously resurrected, reigning and ruling in the ascension Jesus. And we thank You that that self-same Jesus has sent to us now in His absence the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Spirit, we call upon You now to be the power that we need to glorify You in heaven and on earth. We call upon Your power to build a united church across every possible dividing line because in Jesus the walls of hostility have been broken. We call upon the power of the Holy Spirit, Your power, Holy Spirit, To make our words about Jesus effective, even if they're simple. And we call upon your power, Holy Spirit, to make us a people who live in light of our gospel reality. That we are new creations in Christ. That the old has passed. That the new has come. That hearts were once made of stone are now made of flesh and are enabled by Your Spirit to glorify You. Lord, help us. Minister Yourself to us by Your Spirit. And meet us in Your sacraments this morning. As we partake of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus and as we celebrate His victorious life, death, and resurrection in the sacrament of baptism after our gathering. Be with us, Lord. We need You. And in the Spirit, we've been given all that we need because in the Spirit, we have You. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.